namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Practicing the Dhamma, the um, Dhamma is something we can apply to many, many things. It's a, it's a term, word that's strangely indefinite. Um, basically, it means the, the defining characteristic, the thing that, defining characteristic of a thing. Is it's dhamma, the thing that makes it what it is. Is it's dhamma. So we could say, for example, that the dhamma of the of the of the uh, summoners is the vinya. Without that, they're not not summoners. They may be enlightened ones or not enlightened ones, happy ones. But the thing that really defines them as gives them is the quality is that they are they're living according to vinya. Or dhamma of a society, thing that kind of makes it possible, holds it together, defines it, is its 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 morals and ethics, its laws and rules, its conventions and customs. Without that, you don't really have a society. You just have uh, individuals living in a place. Um, Dhamma of a of a spiritual seeker, religious seeker, is is faith. They they can't really seek unless there's some kind of faith in the mind. Some feeling that yes, it's possible. Yes, there's something I don't know now that I could get to know. Something better, higher, further. They don't have that experience, and they can't really seek. And the spiritual seeker, uh, someone who's very much uh, defined by the strength of their faith, and their sadha, their their um, a sense of trust, devotion, confidence, inspiration it sort of covers all these terms. Faith itself is such a is almost as a, is, a, is a strange word for us, and perhaps in this age, which is called the dumb rending age, 
things are breaking up societies are breaking up families are breaking up the sense of connectedness is quite tenuous the uh, things we can really trust in in the social sense are less trustworthy we have law we still have some you know feel of confidence that there's a, there is a legal system that Rights will be heard and so on. We have a bit of technology, the feeling that we can make things work. The rest of it's a bit fuzzy. Um, so, the Dhamma, when the Dhamma declines in a society, then also um, it becomes more difficult for religious seekers. It doesn't mean when it, that uh, it's impossible. Fortunately, we have the example of the Buddha as an inspiration. But it becomes more difficult because the sense of trust is no longer so accessible. We don't have a, such a strong feeling of, of connectedness, of warmth, of belonging, of stability. That, that uh, say uh, this is a strong society, a strong family. These things help to inculcate in people. Without these, then person is much more defensive, selfish, uh, introverted. You know, much more, uh, much less uh, able to feel a sense of trust or benevolence. So even if society is poor. You know, materially poor, technologically backward. If there, if there is a, a, a sense of morals, ethics, conventions, religious qualities such as these, then that society sticks together and it works. And people are endowed with the quality of trust and faith because of that. Some society, so this is an important thing for people to recognize. You don't, you can't really have a society without a proper Dhamma. And that the, the material things don't really work, actually, for that. They don't give rise to faith, they give rise to greed and possessiveness, discontent. I remember reading in a, sto- a book about tribal societies and how one tribe, I think they were in um, East Africa, then they would always, it was quite poor and they had camels and they used to just roam around this arid scrubland with just foraging and they're nomadic. And one of their rules was that you always had to give things away to other people. If you had something good, you had to find a way to give it away sooner or later. So there was, people were always giving stuff to each other. Um, and they had the saying, one, one poor man is, is a disgrace to us all. If somebody's poor and deprived, that's, that's a blemish on, on us because we, we should actually be looking after them. And so there's this very strong feeling of dana, of generosity, of sharing. So the society holds together. 
And in this book, it, it said uh, they asked somebody, "What happens if a if a person decided they didn't want to give things away? They got a good camel and they didn't want to give it away. They wouldn't even want to give it to somebody else." And they said, "Ooh, that would be terrible." So what would you do? To, you wouldn't do anything to him. What would be, it'd be terrible though? Well, what would happen? We'd have to die alone. He wouldn't have anybody with him when he died. That would be terrible. You know, so the the uh, feeling that one is dissociated, one is one splinters off, one is fragmented from the whole, and that's the most terrible thing. Um, it's it's uh, telling to recognise that probably most people in Britain would consider themselves <laughs> fragmented, splintered off. You've got a reason, you know, you've got a not not completely broken up, but a much less uh, sense of connectedness. You know, you, you tend to you don't you, you don't really know who your neighbours are five houses away. Uh, you kind of you don't really know each other. You don't connect on streets and things like that. There's a feeling of mistrust. Why? Because of a lack of of morals. Why is there a lack of morals? Because it's not a not a clear enough indication of its value. And we've we've come up with that. I don't think it's purely a British phenomenon. Western world has come up through that the emphasis on holding on to possessions and technology and individual advancement rather than group connectedness. So that the you know the religion is is quite uh, quite weakened, dissipated as a force. Faith is a word that people rarely use. And even then it's got a very specialized use. Just a few people may have faith. It's a kind of slightly funny thing that happens to some people. Um, so we've come up through that and when one considers into your own heart whether one has that feeling of uh, trust and confidence then you note the thing that seems to why we find sometimes is you know the suttas or even some of the uh, stories and biographies of, of Asian monks, you know, like, like they just heard the word. Somebody like in a sutta, somebody hears the word Buddha, and they're blissed out by the word. You think, oh, Buddha, so what? <laughs> you know, or, or they they hear of an enlightened one, and they they're kind of over their body is suffused with with rapture, with the very idea of that person. You think, Funny. You know, if you see and think Buddha all day long, nothing happens. <laughs> or, or maybe you think of him, you think, well, good for him, but but doesn't bother, doesn't affect me. So somebody else is enlightened. Well, maybe, maybe not, but you know, so what? Um, and we also we find that that so compared with say uh, uh, like a a Thai or traditional, more traditional Thai uh, society, then there's such a, a connectedness and a feeling of of an underlying 
Uh, faith doesn't necessarily mean they're all perfect or moral or righteous, but there's some kind of recognition, hey, this is what the right thing is, it's this. You know, and people acknowledge their failings. Then they're, they're, if a person actually directs themselves and turns towards that object of faith, they get a tremendous amount of uplift and support from it, and energy, enthusiasm. And so one sometimes is slightly mystified at how these people go forth into homelessness in a in an Asian country, and then they don't seem to have the kind of um, they have desires and aversion and so forth. They don't seem to have the tremendous doubt and and uh, lack of lack of joy. They don't seem to get the kind of uh, we don't seem to get the kind of gladness and joy that others do. Because the faith element is so unexercised, unenergized. There's um, somebody's telling you they had a tape. I haven't listened to it yet, meaning till some time or another, by a man who's a psychotherapist and he works. I think he's a he's into Vajrayana Buddhism and so on. And I think he works in the Ropa or somewhere like that. Anyway, so he's very he's connect he's very much interested in Buddha Dharma and he, he practices it. One of his things was he said he didn't, he would never, he'd never, he couldn't think of a single Tibetan monk or practitioner or nun who would need any kind of psychotherapy, who would actually benefit from it. But he couldn't think of a single Western monk or nun who, who wouldn't need it. <laughs> who wouldn't benefit from it. And sometimes there's this feeling that uh, you know people there's something missing or something isn't quite connected. There's blockages. People have kinds of traumas and blocks and things. And you see these uh, Tibetan monks and nuns and they're so gleeful and happy, and joyful in practicing. And then the Westerners have kind of may have determination and plug away grimly, but there's not the sort of ebullience or joy quality. One considers, you know, what are, what are we? Do we have a feeling of what, of connectedness? Where does that? Why is that joy missing? And people often feel radically insecure and spend many years in dharma practice just working out their their antith- antipathy to groups, <laughs> the sense of inadequacy, their their aversion to authority figures, father figures, mother figures. These kinds of things that, that just begin to surface. That is the kind of that we often associate with with psychotherapy. I don't know whether you do need it or not. I have done this psychotherapy myself. I personally feel that uh, um, faith is the uh, and cultivating faith is the is a therapy. It's really helpful traditional therapy. Difficult to get going, but that's, to my mind, that's, that's what the therapy is. 
is that which connects us. Because faith is, is a heart experience, it's an irrational experience, it's not a discriminating experience, it's not a thought or an idea or a concept, it's a kind of, it's something that, that has a quality of uplift and rapture, it's a heart experience, we look at it that way. And in, when we look at heart experiences, they are, they, they are boundless. They, they are, they're non, they don't work within boundaries. They may be limited, but they don't have clear boundaries. We don't see it like that. So it's that which actually is a tremendous energy source in it. It's kind of got a, a quality of, of lifting one up. The very fact of faith means that that which is unknown, that which one hasn't realized, that which one doesn't know, does not bring around a feeling of inadequacy and fear and intimidation, but brings around the sense of eagerness. Oh, it is possible. There is more. There is an unknown. It's it's a positive sign. Because one feels one will move into that and be be made better by it, enriched by it. Whereas from, from the point of view of discrimination, the unknown is what it's not it's not safe it's not certain it's not secure it's not something I've figured out it's not something that I've been established in oh dear it's a different experience and uh, for if one's attention is rooted in in that kind of conceptualizing mind consciousness then it's very difficult to, to really move forward fluidly and easily. One always seeks reassurance, rules, ideas, things to hang on to. The, the movement forwards is not easy, it's slow. And the mind will always be, be having to drag along potential doubt, skepsis, hesitation, wavering uncertainty so it's a very very helpful factor in the path I would say that irreducible it's irreplaceable and most of us have some kind of faith you know it's not we're not completely shot otherwise we wouldn't be here um but it needs to be accessed, it needs to be recognized, it needs to be enhanced, it needs to be amplified, developed, made much of, and set working and applied. So there's a, the initial faith I think that we come from is the recognition of dukkha, that is a sense of dissatisfaction, suffering, that is one of the instigators of it. That, that the known, the finite, the things we can conceive of, the things we're fixed in, are not good enough. So there's something pushing us forward. And then we may, faith may arise because we read something, we meet someone, we enter a situation, or we have 
a particular experience that encourages us to go forward, to go beyond what we know, to make certain resolutions and commitments, to extend ourselves. So in this time, then, of course, uh, we have the teachers, we have the books, we have the scriptures, we have the presence of the Sangha. There's something that can act in that way, provided that it acts as a Sangha does, in accordance with the Dhamma, in accordance with Vinaya. And certainly, if one lives with close to to this to a, a community of, of gone forth people who are practicing this way, lives close to it or lives with it, then and you're attuned to it, then faith can be sustained and developed. And one's faith occurs because we begin to recognise there are certain values here that are not about that are trustworthy that are morally pure. Whereas when you come from an ordinary society, you recognize, well, what can you trust? Media is distorting truth, um, often grossly, often even obviously. It doesn't care that you know it's lying. Um, Advertisements and so forth are, are often blatant and quite carefree lies that uh, don't have to be true because they they realize that a person can be duped by quite simply even even knowing that they're being duped just by certain signs and characteristics politicians you can't really trust and they also know that they don't even have to pretend much (laughs) to be honest because they have certain uh, abilities to move people emotionally. So, because of this, we are very wary. And emotionally wary. Uh, which is uh, the natural result of living in a dishonest uh, society and one that also uh, employs emotional means things that uh, uh, say promises of pleasure and so on things that just reach the heart various tricks of, of advertising and uh, showmanship to make us feel good temporarily even though we know it's false so we, we tend to buy into that, having no other source of emotional uplift. Noticing how, you know, someone like Ronald Reagan, who was manifestly incompetent and didn't, you know, didn't seem to mind that people, knew, he was always kind of falling asleep in things, saying the most silly things, and, you know, supposed to be the most responsible person in the world <laughs> there's obviously you know bits missing somewhere and completely quite incompetent but he managed to get away with it by being able to look charming and come out with with uh, uh, kind of glib remarks that you know had particular triggers for the American public 
know, things that, that British people would, wouldn't quite get, but he could reach the heartstrings of the American public. And so they'd vote for this person who was obviously and blatantly and seemingly unashamedly incompetent and um, foolish because he could kind of make, you know, he could come out with a few tears at times to get people's hearts going or he could say some kind of, he, would, he, could, he knew the icons that would move people's, pull people's heartstrings. And you get these, these politicians do. Um, you know. And so, and it's rather like advertisements are so much the same. Now that is when uh, we are emotionally very vulnerable because of a lack of of having uh, having faith, having something that is is satisfying, that is solidifying, that connects us on an emotional plane. We tend to just get connected to anything just for the sake of being connected. So if somebody plays Land Land of Hope and Glory and suddenly we all get our flags out and we're all suddenly all being British, you know, God save the Queen or something that moves your heart and you suddenly get into a national identity just for the sake of feeling you're all connected and how great it is. You get the pity, the rapture comes up. Or you belong to a football club and you get your red rosettes and your clacker and your scarf and suddenly there you are rooting for Wigan Town or somewhere like that. You know. And it gives you a feeling of belonging, connectedness and people are so thirsty for that that they support the most daft and pointless things to feel belonging. Because there's no... The faith's not there, or the faith doesn't, that faith element doesn't have a, a proper Dharma to connect to. This is very significant because although we imagine ourselves to be uh, controlled by our thoughts, and we have, and we have often highly developed thinking apparatus and thinking programs, actually we are more controlled by our emotions than our thoughts. And certain thoughts can stimulate the emotions that will control us, and we can be given thoughts that will stimulate the emotions that control us. But we are basically, an ordinary person is controlled by their emotions. And you you know, you throw in some emotive terms, racist terms or political jargon, that hits the right chord, and the person becomes uh, in a, uh, is, is captured by that. We can become very idealistic, totally caught up with ideologies that make us feel right and certain and convinced, and so on. As you as you go through your teens, often you go through these stages of. You know, because there's a tremendous need to connect. You fall in love with somebody or the other and you feel really connected like that. And then you've probably got some kind of, you know, social, social or political ideology, something like that. And you feel connected by it. This is, this is the way it is for humans. 
they find it sooner or later they give their faith sooner or later they give they do give their hearts but the problem is that that there's so much around that plays on the heartstrings that stimulates a kind of wrong faith a wrong going forth without enough to stimulate um, the right so often when one comes into uh, contact with the religious religious uh, form then there's a tremendous wariness about it people have been bitten stung before and so and religion in a way is quite uh, blatant about its its faith it doesn't mask it at all it requires it the Buddha himself um, recognized that one should not uh, follow teaching or a teacher purely on on faith purely or at least on belief anyway that is when one uh, has faith and then one doesn't use that faith properly so one has faith and then one just uh, is blind about it you get the experience of faith of inspiration and then you say oh because of that feeling that's right it's always right. Um, so he very strongly rec- you know, uh, talked, uh, recommended people not to not to follow that, not to follow things on belief, which is a kind of misuse of faith. And this this aspect of, of Buddha Dharma is is often mentioned, and people feel encouraged by it because the Buddha said you shouldn't even believe in what I'm saying. And people think, oh, that's that's very good. Yeah, that's that's right. That's that's very challenging. That's you know, that's really good thing to say because in a way it does it does mean a sense of total personal responsibility. And uh, Westerners like that because we are used to being individuals and independent, particularly and, and figuring things out for ourselves. But then we go to the other extreme in that we don't even have we don't have faith. So we don't misuse the faith by by turning into belief, but we don't use it skillfully either. So we tend to get in a kind of pragmatic uh, state of um, you know, like independence. Um, and the the energy that we put into practice is more like a goal-oriented willpower, determination, things that are quite laudable in their own right, but they, they go wrong because they, they don't have the amplification of faith. We can find ourselves just tremendously caught up with ideals that we've created, needing to needing to achieve things, needing to uh, some sort of performance mentality. Uh, make sure we get there, pushing oneself, sometimes straining oneself in order to feel that one has deserved things. Or one has got hold of something, or one has accomplished something. So there can be this kind of restlessness in the mind and demanding in the mind that means that we never really open into a feeling of 
gladness, presence, joy, or ease of heart. And these factors are crucial for the development of meditation. One can't meditate properly unless there's some gladness and ease. It doesn't work, it doesn't happen. The mind never comes together. There's no unity, there's no connection. There's no satisfaction. I think in my own practice I spent many years more or less just kind of battling away on going through the motions of meditation technique. You know, with this this particular thing in the mind that you know you have to rely on yourself, don't even believe in the Buddha, do it all yourself, that kind of thing going. Um and although it was not entirely unskillful that that one did develop the ability to put forth effort and energy and uh, concentrate and attend and stay with something, there was never the kind of nourishment that comes from ease, trust, confidence. There was this need to actually get somewhere, have something, find something. So that the whole system got very strained. And uh, uh, I, I really didn't imagine that the path could be about anything like happiness. It was a totally alien concept. Happiness or peace of mind had kind of completely disappeared from my vocabulary of practice. It was all effort, attention, concentration, mindfulness, but like happiness or ease was not not there. And faith, I didn't really I didn't do we didn't have any chanting. There was some funny little image stuck up in the corner of my kuti, but so what, you know? Some statue of something or the other. Never really looked at it. <laughs> Because after all, it's just a lump of stone, so what? It doesn't do me any good. You know, this kind of thing. And on one level, yeah, right. Uh, it wasn't really until I, I think I had this tremendous emotional uh, jolt of my father dying that actually kind of sort of shook the system vigorously enough to, to recognise you know, hey, there's something, you know, there's no support here. And very often in practice we're we're asked to remember this. Dhammas of of birth, like aging, sickness, death, separation from the loved, and one is heir to one's karma. These are jolting. If they're recollected, they're meant to be jolting. They're meant to, to in a way, to shake us out of the <coughs> mentality that means I'm going to do it when everything that I appear to be breaks up and can't hold anything. 
body breaks down, energy goes, mind's ability to calculate, remember, fades, health changes, vitality declines. So where are you going? And how can you go? We die alone. If we follow that path, unconnected. When faith is properly used, then maybe it's like we ask ourselves, why am I doing this? Maybe we do that quite a lot and linger around it. Not just a quick verbal answer, but the the mood. Why am I doing this? Just to connect to the mood, the emotion behind it. Perhaps some of the, the weariness with uh, the sensory round, the disappointment, or the feeling of the inadequacy at all, the sadness of it. To actually recollect and connect, not just to the words, but to the, the mood, the emotion behind it. This is the how recollection, skillfully used, is an attribute to faith, that which kindles faith. How many times do we have to go through this before we learn? How many breakups? How many letdowns? How many betrayals? How many broken hearts? How many broken bodies do we have to go through? until one is weary of it enough this is something to recollect and then the sign on the positive side the Buddha there is an awakened there is a sorrowless as a human being a person lived in a family had a family played games went through their education probably did the kind of things that boys do and a wife, son, and a prospect, and a career, all set up. Just a human being. Uh, and yet, uh, realizing something that gone beyond that. Total connection to his own presence, 
not needing things, not leaning on things, not hurt by things, and yet living in a totally vulnerable state of mendicancy, not protected, but sorrowless through his own perfections, purity and cultivation. These are things to to recollect, not just the words, but what this means. And through the arise and decline of empires and kingdoms, with a tremendous power and noise, come and gone into the dust, teaching of the Buddha serenely sails on and is with us today. This is clear. This is available. Something we can we can get our minds around, we can move into. Created through what? Through one Nepalese dropout. <laughs> you know, when all these Roman Empire, Greek Empire, British Empire, Genghis Khan, Chinese, gone. Dust. And yet this kind of, so there's a power of the Dhamma. And one has the, one has the possibility to, to tune into it. Because Buddha Dharma says, if you've got a body, you've got a mind, you understand what morality means, then you're available. Do you have faith? Can you move through the door? Or do you want to just stand around looking at the handle, wondering if it's going to work? So, of course, the faith is the Stepping across the threshold, the unknown. But with, with wisdom. In that we are connecting the faith that's kindled by the Buddha, that's spurred on by Dukkha, kindled by the Buddha and the Dhamma, the Sangha. We're connecting it to nothing extravagant, not making a just making a commitment to this body and mind for a moment at a time. Connecting to it. Making it possible to connect to it. Slowing it, calming it, investigating it. So, yeah, it's faith, it's a reasonable act of faith, and it's endowed with, with discernment. And if one <laughs> cultivates recollection, it's also important to extend this, to have, to recollect that you have virtue like the Buddha 
you can recognize harming and non-harming, stealing and non-stealing, and you can you can follow those. You have faith. You have virtue. We can discern, we can discriminate like that. So there can be this faith in ourselves. And when one lives in a, in a community of people cultivating virtue, then the beauty of it is we begin to, the tr- faith is multifi- multiplied a hundred times. Because not only can we trust ourselves, we can live in a trusting environment to help us through our fears, our traumas, the things that we can't manage. The well-practiced sangha is the group therapy. Faith, of course, is both um, energized and made possible through recollection, and it uh, that's its one of its seeds, one of its its conditions, one of its causes. And of course, it's properly used, it's properly um, developed or properly applied through uh, the wisdom faculty. Faith is balanced with wisdom in Buddha Dhamma. So when when that faith arises, we don't just kind of blow it like a spending spree. We don't just splurge it on some kind of devotional high or singing songs, which you could do. But you apply the faith, the quality of the, the opened heart to of meditation that is you you recollect you collect it and you use it to dispel doubt dispel wavering to make resolution to apply the mind where the mind would not apply to go against the habit that one would not go against to relinquish something that one would not relinquish to pick up something that one would not pick up if the faith is not there. So faith enables us to, to with wise, wisely recollected, we see when there is that energy of faith, there's something to be done. If I have faith, this means that, that, that I can use it against that attachment. I can use that strength against that uh, doubt or desire in the mind. Things that pull on the heartstrings. Things that capture the emotions. We certainly, we make a lot of um, effort and mindfulness as means of dispelling hindrances. And of course, this is certainly the case. But if there were not the faith one would not apply the mindfulness. 
And if you notice when a hindrance takes over, if you notice, say you're going through the food, sight, a pleasant fragrance, something of this nature strikes the senses. And there's this kind of brief moment, perhaps. Perhaps it's very brief. Maybe it gets longer as you as you calm down. Where there's the possibility of following that or checking it. And if there's faith is a thing that steps in there say, hey, you don't have to follow this. It's not worth it. You can not follow this. When faith is low, when one feels depressed, when one's in doubt, one feels depressed. So you, well, what can you do? And there, there isn't that heart energy to actually pull you out of the thing that's catching hold of your heart, desire, aversion, the mood that's taking you. You believe in it. It's real, powerful. And we believe time and time again, you know, on a heart level. You can go through the food line and intellectually you know da 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 but sight hits the eye and the heart believes that you will find fulfillment and happiness through kind of getting as much eating another three buns or something. And, it, and, it, and it, intellectually, you, then you curse yourself for it, but you can't, you can't really uh, cut this stuff intellectually. It's where it grabs you, and it takes the the faith to 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 know to 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 energize the heart. So we we, on a heart level, realize that that doesn't work. It doesn't make us feel good. And the faith that tells us that what does make us feel good is renunciation. It's letting go of things, of being freed. That's what makes us feel good. So that is where faith counteracts right at the point of sense contact when you're in doubt when you're wavering and uncertain the faith element is very low you can be certain that the hindrances will have much greater uh, say over your life when you don't have uh, strong faith then you'll almost certainly be much easier prey and you'll find it yourself less inclined to make the effort to kind of restrain again and what's the point and is it really worth it you know it it uh, all the other all the other skillful factors decline there's no faith there's no possibility of applying but if there is faith then you can do Amazing things. 
So on the very immediate level, not just as a belief, but the very immediate experience, the direct experience of a heart that is feels energized and has confidence, then that's where faith is finds its peak through collecting it, knowing where it should be applied, when it should be applied, having it ready. So faith gets endowed with wisdom and becomes the support for mindfulness and insight. In terms of deliberate in, in faith in Buddha Dharma is something that's, that's deliberately cultivated. It's not a fluke. It may arise because of particular conditions and causes, you know, sort of um, spontaneously, but it's also something we deliberately cultivate. And again, this to, to an ordinary person doesn't make sense because it's not, you know, we think deliberate is, is the head and the spontaneous is the heart and never the twain shall meet. But the cultivate recollection is exactly that which connects the, the, the thinking to the, to the emotion. You take a thought and you run it through slowly and you listen to it carefully and you feel the mood underneath it. And you use a simple thought. You recollect death. You recollect dukkha. You recollect Buddha, Dhamma. You recollect virtue. You recollect kindness. You recollect these things hold them in your mind and feel them just as if we recollected a friend we would have a certain feeling if you recollected a fortunate uh, occasion, a holiday or fortunate thing we would have a certain feeling would arise then wise recollection is the the same nature Deliberate, sustained thought, but feeling it, feeling what it goes to, feeling what it's about. And of course, a lot is made in meditation of of stilling thought and dispelling thought. And for most people, thought is a real problem because it's the incessant conceiving, conceptualizing and Things that's gone completely out of control. But if we have if we have faith in the way the Buddha taught, then you see that deliberate thought is very much a main plank of the Buddha's teaching, of his practice path. Not as just a kind of philosophical thing, but that one of the main planks of the Buddha's practice path is deliberate thought. Thought that is kind of like a philosophical treatise, but simple thought that is is felt out, appreciated, taken into the heart till its meaning sits there and engenders the controlling faculties of enlightenment. So offer this for your reflection tonight.
Hmm. 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 Hmm.